And I personally believe this is why we've watched so many people leave Christianity, because they've never experienced that presence of God. The Profile with Premier Christianity Magazine. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Dittles, editor of Premier Christianity Magazine, which is the magazine that sponsors this show. And every week here on The Profile, we like to speak to a different Christian and find out something about their life, faith and ministry. And I'm really pleased to say that my guest today is John Bevere. He is a minister known for his bold, uncompromising approach to God's word. He's also an international best-selling author, has written more than 20 books that have collectively sold millions of copies, have been translated into 100-plus languages. And along with his wife, Lisa, John is the co-founder of Messenger International. That's a ministry committed to revolutionizing global discipleship. John, welcome to the show. Sam, it's a pleasure to be on with you and an honor. That's so kind of you. Now, you're coming to us from Nashville, Tennessee, a place I've not yet had the privilege of visiting. But can you sell it to me? I need to come over. Why, why should I visit? Well, we actually live in Franklin, which is 30 miles south. It's a historic city. It's actually where Ian Bounds had the revival. His church is literally three miles from our house. And there are just a lot of world, um, world influencers that are in this area. And the synergy just creates an amazing amount of effectiveness as what happens whenever God's people join together and work together. So that's why we love living here. June will be our 40th year in the ministry, full-time ministry. I did start out in pastoring for the first seven years, but for the last 33 years, uh, Lisa and I will birth Messenger International. We've got about 40 team members in the States, and then we've got about 1,000 team members globally. And our real passion is to help leaders to disciple the people that they lead I have asked God and asked God, can I start a church? Can I start a church? And I always get the same thing. Uh, I'm not saying he's not going to tell me to do it in the future. I don't ever want to say that. That's a very dangerous thing to say. But Lisa and I have probably traveled over 12 million miles, you know, to probably well over 60 nations. I know it's over 60 nations and just spoken at conferences and churches all over the globe. So the new book is The Awe of Gods. Why take on that subject? because it's desperately needed in the Western church today. If you look at Isaiah 33, 6, Sam, we are told that the healthy, holy fear of God is God's treasure. Now just pause there for a second, okay? God's treasure. Okay, if you look at Isaiah 11, 3, it was Jesus's delight. Okay, if you look at Philippians chapter 2, Paul makes the statement, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say we work out our salvation with love and kindness. So you're looking at God's treasure, Jesus' delight, and how we mature our salvation. My question is, why aren't we talking about it more? Now, the first thing I want to do with every single one of your listeners is I want to eradicate any kind of unhealthy fears of the fear of God. Yes, there have been legalistic people that have used it to beat people up. Telling you something, when you understand the fear of the Lord, you absolutely embrace it and love it. So the fear of the Lord is not to be scared of God. That's the first thing I want to say. How can you have a relationship of intimacy with somebody you're scared of? And that is God's passion, is to have an intimate relationship with us. In fact, 
the fear of the Lord, according to scripture, is the beginning. It's the starting place of an intimate relationship with God. Um, Proverbs 1, 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of an intimate knowledge of God. And you have to put it together with Proverbs 2, 5. You look at Psalm 25, verse 14, it says friendship. Now, this is the New Living Translation. Friendship with the Lord is reserved for those who fear him. With them, he shares his secrets. Now, all of us desire to be intimate with God and have God sharing his secrets with us. The fear of the Lord is what opens the door to that. So to prove it is not to be scared of God, you remember Moses brings Israel out of Egypt and brings them straight to the mountain that he met God at. And that was Mount Sinai. The burning bush was at Mount Sinai. When God came down on the mountain, the people ran away and Moses made the statement. He said, do not fear. This is Exodus 20, 20. Do not fear. Do not fear because God's come to test you to see if his fear is in you so that you may not sin. Wait a minute. Do not fear because God's come to see if his fear is in you. He's differentiating between being scared of God and the fear of the Lord. Now, the, the difference is this. The person who is scared of God has something to hide. What does Adam do when he sins against God in the garden? He hides from the presence of the Lord. The person who fears God has nothing to hide. That person is terrified of being away from God. So when we talk about the fear of the Lord, Sam, we're talking about to venerate him. Now, venerate is kind of a big word. It's a complex word. It's meant when we reverence, respect, revere, stand in awe, and even tremble before him more than anyone or anything else. It's when we take on his heart and we love what he loves and we hate what he hates. Now, let me show you the legalistic view of the fear of the Lord, the healthy fear of God, the healthy awe of God, I should say. If, you, if, if people listening to us have ever heard some, some a, a legalist person go, I fear God, that's why I hate those sinners. Well, that person doesn't fear God at all because he hates what God loves. God loves those people so much he came and died for them. That's how deeply he loves them. So you actually say you hate what God loves. What God hates is the sin that unmakes a human being. God has called all of us to be regal royal people because we are his offspring. So he hates what pulls us away from that nobility. And that is a lack of the fear of the Lord or the awe of God. Yeah. And a lot of Christians perhaps don't have that sense of seriousness. Or if I could put it a, another way, sometimes we talk a lot about desiring intimacy and closeness with God, talk about having a relationship with God. Is there a tension between talking about a relationship with God and the closeness to God, and then also this reverent fear and awe? Because I think for some people, they're, they're two slightly, well, two very different things, aren't they? A, a closeness and intimacy and an awe and a reverence. Yeah, you know, when I really discovered how that it attracts the presence of God, um, first time I was asked to speak in Brazil was 1997. It was a national conference. And I was so excited, Sam. I had never been to Brazil before since I've been literally probably over 20 times. But I remember flying down there so excited because it's a big national conference, right? And it's in Brasilia, the capital. And I walk into this arena and it's not an auditorium, it's an arena and it's jam packed and it's a believers conference. And that was back in the days when they kept pastors on the platform. So I'm on the platform. And what was interesting is the musicians are unreal. 
The singing is so good. I mean, it's in Portuguese. I don't understand it, but man, you can tell. They're good. They're talented. But there was no presence of God. None. And I remember closing my eyes, Sam, and I said, God, where is your presence? And I opened my eyes and I saw something I didn't, I didn't recognize before. I saw people stand there with their arms crossed looking around. I had people had their hands in their pockets looking down. I saw people walking around, high-fiving, saying hi to people, greeting one another, talking, chatting in conversation. I watched people walk down the big aisles, go out to one of the many concession stands, getting their nachos, whatever they were getting, going back to their seat, talking to people as they go back. And I'm thinking, okay, this will stop, but it doesn't. And I remember after the worship set, the leader of the, one of the leaders, because it's a multi-church uh, conference, pastor walks up and begins reading from scripture. And now because there's no music, you can hear the mutter from all the people visiting. And I'm like, you're kidding me. And the Holy Spirit speaks to me and said, son, you've got to confront this. I'm like, how? How do I even get their attention? So the Lord gave me an idea. So I walk up, they introduced me. I walk up to the podium and I just sat there and stared at everybody. <laughs> Didn't say a word, not a word. And now when you're the Friday night guest speaker of the national conference, and you're standing there, and you're not saying one word. After about 60 seconds, it seems like forever, and it gets people's attention. And I remember after 60 seconds, I, I realized every eye in the building was on me. These are the first words I ever spoke in Brazil in public. First words. I didn't say, thank you for having me. Nice to be here. First thing that came out of my mouth, I have a question. You're sitting, talking to somebody sitting across the table. The whole time you're talking to them, they got their arms crossed, looking around as if they're disinterested, their hands in their pocket looking down, or they're whispering to a person sitting next to them. Will you continue to talk to them? No. I said, I have been in this arena for an hour, over an hour. There isn't a drop of the presence of God because God will never come into an atmosphere where he's not held with the utmost of respect. Psalm 89 verse 7 says, God is to be greatly feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. You're never going to find God in an atmosphere where he's not held with the utmost respect. I said, if your president, president of Brazil, would have walked on this platform tonight, you would have given him 10 times the respect the Holy Spirit. I said, if Pele, your greatest soccer player, your great, you call it football, your greatest football player in the nation of Brazil's history would have walked on this platform tonight, you would have been on the edge of your seats anticipating every word. I said, you've given no respect to the Spirit of God. And I preached him for 75 minutes, Sam, on the fear of the Lord. When I was finished, I said, now, this is a believer's cause. I said, every person in here, you say you're saved, but you lack the fear of God, and you're willing to repent, stand up. 75% of the arena stands to its feet. When they did, the presence of God came into the place. Now people start weeping, right? And I'm like, ah. Oh. So... The leave of prayer repentance, wonderful, refreshing presence of God. Well, then there's a lull, and it kind of lifts. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, I'm coming one more time, son. Now, Sam, there is no way I can ever do justice with what happened in the next couple minutes. But within 30 seconds of him saying, I'm coming one more time, I want you to imagine standing a couple hundred meters away from the end of the runway at Heathrow Airport and a Boeing jet takes off in front of you. That kind of a violent wind came blowing into that arena. When it did, the people started screaming. Now, can you imagine thousands of Brazilians screaming, but the wind was louder. 
Now, here's where it gets interesting. I'm standing on that platform and I'm terrified. This authority and presence is so strong, I'm terrified. But yet, I'm drawn to it. So when Isaiah sees the Lord, he didn't go, dude, there he is. He's on his face groveling, going, woe is me, because he realizes who this God is that he's serving. And he's a righteous man. And I remember, I, I, I'm sitting there trembling, but I'm drawn to it. And the thought goes through my mind, Sam, John Bevere, you say one wrong word, you make one wrong move, you're dead. Now, would that have happened? I don't know. But a man and his wife brought an offering in that kind of a presence in Acts chapter 5 to their local church. They brought an offering to their local church, and they fell over dead, and they buried him that day. I knew daddy didn't come into that arena. The king came in. And I knew irreverence wouldn't be tolerated. And I remember the wind lasted for about 90 seconds. It, it gradually subsided. It left its way. People collapsed all over the arena. They're weeping. They're, they're just sobbing. And I'm standing there. I'm like, God, what do I do? What do I do? And the Holy Spirit whispers in my heart. He said, son, that's it for you tonight. <laughs> it's all yours. And they whisked me out, put me in the car, and they put the national singer in the car. She was the soloist that night. And her husband, she's, she literally screams when she gets in the car. Did you hear the wind? Did you hear the wind? I said, and, and I said this. I said, maybe it was a jet airplane that flew really too low over the arena. And she started getting upset with me. And her husband quieted me down. He said, that was no jet airplane. I said, how do you know? He said, because there were security men and policemen all around the arena. He said, they're union workers. Most of them aren't even safe. He said, they came running in because they could hear what was going on. And they wanted to know what was happening with this wind. He said, I was standing at the soundboard because I was making sure my wife's levels were right for saying the whole time she's on the, the winds blowing, the decimal meters were at zero. He said, John, not one ounce of the sound came through the sound system. Now, I remember they said, I don't want to go to eat. Take me to my hotel. And I sat on my balcony in awe until 1.30 in the morning. Half of me is going... Did that really just happen tonight? The other half is in awe of God, right? The next morning, same arena, same conference. Sam, you can't believe the miracles that happened, the salvations, the deliverances, the healings that happened in that service because of awe. You know, for 22 years, we heard about the wind. We had snail mail. We had emails. I remember 2016, I went to Goiania, Brazil to speak to 12,000 pastors. The first pastor that met me said, I was in the building in 1997, 19 years ago, John. My life has never been the same. Sam, when you encounter the holy, the, the glorious presence of God, you're never the same. And I personally believe this is why we've watched so many people leave Christianity, because they never experienced that presence of God. And so... That's why I believe it's so important for the church today, Sam. I mean, Barnett did a study in the United States, and I know England's probably so much better off than us, but in the United States, we've had over 23 million people walk away from the faith in the, since the year 2000. 23 million. Sam, those people just didn't walk away. They are now professing atheists, agnostics, and spiritualists. 
That is one out of every 14 Americans. And I keep asking myself, Sam, I can't, well, I don't ask myself. I'm asking God, God, why? Why are we losing them like crazy? And Sam, I'm, I'm beginning to wonder if possibly we've introduced a different Jesus. You know, Jesus is invisible. And I can say to somebody who's living in willful sin, who was going to stay in their willful sin because they refuse to submit to God's authority, pray this prayer and you're saved. I don't even think most of those people were ever genuinely had a relationship. I, I don't think anybody would walk away if they've ever truly encountered what we encountered in Brazil. And I'll tell you something interesting. Two years later, I was in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. It was a national conference. This time it was an auditorium. People had traveled from all over Malaysia for this conference. It was the final service. And I'll never forget that presence came in again. Now, there was no wind this time, but that presence came in again. But this time it was even more powerful. I know that sounds hard to believe. And again, I'm standing there thinking the same thoughts. But Vera, you say one wrong word, it's over for you. I mean, it was amazing, right? And I'm watching the people I'm impacted. And I remember when it was over, it lasted five minutes, six minutes. The leader, who's very well known in Malaysia, comes up and goes, we were planning ending with a song. We're not doing it. Just stay in this auditorium as long as you want. We're officially dismissed, but you don't have to leave until you're ready. Well, people stayed for a long, long time, right? I finally left after about 15 minutes. And I remember walking out and... There's an Indian couple. Now, they were from the nation of India, and they were Bible school students because it was the largest Bible school in the nation of Malaysia in Kuala Lumpur. And I remember I noticed that she really got impacted by the presence, right? And so did he. And I, I remember we're just staring at each other. What did you say after something like this, right? And finally, she opens her mouth and she goes, I feel so clean inside. I said, oh my gosh, that's it. You just articulated, I didn't say this out loud because we were just too in awe. You just articulated what, what, what I felt in Brazil and what I feel right now. And I remember going back to my hotel in Kuala Lumpur and I, I just thought, she nailed it. I feel clean. I feel so clean. So the next morning, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm getting ready to go play basketball with the Bible school students in Malaysia. And I'm putting on my gym shorts, right, to go play basketball. And the Holy Spirit speaks to me and he said, son, read Psalm 19. Now, Sam, I had no idea what was in Psalm 19, right? So I go over there, I read verse one, two, three, four. I get to verse nine. It says, the fear of the Lord is clean. And I went, oh my gosh, there it is. Okay. The fear yeah. of the Lord is clean. And then it said this, Sam, enduring forever. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me and he said, Lucifer led worship right before my throne. He beheld my glory. He was anointed to do so. He did not fear me. He did not endure forever. He said, a third of the angels surrounded my throne. They beheld my glory, son. They did not fear me. They didn't endure in heaven forever. He said, Adam and Eve walked in the presence of my glory. They did not fear me. They did not endure in the garden forever. He said, every created being that surrounds my throne throughout eternity will have been tested in the holy healthy fear of God. And I started thinking there are people that have started in ministry. They love Jesus. They love people. They didn't fear God. They didn't endure in the pastorship or the ministry forever. I look at 23 million Americans have walked away. Did we not preach the fear of God? Did we not allow his glorious presence to impact them? 
That's why I believe this is a very crucial and timely message for right. Yeah. Well, it's an amazing story uh, of the, the wind of God breaking like that. And as I say, the book is called The Awe of God. Um, when you've had an experience like that, I mean, you'll, you'll know, you'll, you get invited to speak, as you say, at some large events and, you know, you have books under your name and there is a kind of celebrity culture in many parts of the American church and some parts of the British church as well. This fantastic speaker is going to do X, Y, Z. When you've had an experience like that and God breaks in and you are living with, the, with a healthy fear of the Lord and the awe of God, what steps do you then take? to say in your own heart, in your own ministry, I really need to make sure this is not about me and I'm not going to get caught up in that world of elevating people and putting certain preachers on a platform and saying, aren't you great? I need to live under this healthy fear of the Lord and live humbly. How, how does that get outworked in your life? One of my favorite scriptures in the Bible is John 15, 4. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Jesus said in Luke 17, when you've done all these things you've been commanded to do, say we are unprofitable servants. We've only done our duty. The fear of the Lord and humility run hand in hand. Sam, I remember as a young minister, I prayed something that was, actually it was the smartest prayer I ever prayed when in my 20s. You know, when you're in your 20s, you're probably the stupidest you're ever going to be, right? But yet, for some reason, I prayed this prayer and I said, God, please never allow this ministry to grow past the character you've developed in me. And I'll never forget this, Sam. Um, in that time period, I'm still in my 20s. One day I was outside and I was in the woods. And I was assistant pastor in a very, very large church that if I said the name of the, the senior pastor, almost every one of your listeners would know. And I was one of his assistants. And I was crying out to God um, because I had just read in my Bible Isaiah 6, where Isaiah saw the Lord. He, and, and the first thing Isaiah notices, these massive angels that are called seraphim, that are crying out, holy, holy, holy. Well, I knew back in those days that whole, they're not saying holy three times. That's a Hebrew form of writing. In English, we boldface, we italicize. The Hebrews write it twice, but very rarely do they write it three times. That means you elevate the word to the highest level of emphasis they're crying holy so loud they're shaking the doorpost of an arena that seats over a billion beings in heaven and they're not singing a song making god feel good about himself i know john vicus dacus or whatever his name was wrote that in the 1800s and many people yawn they're responding to what they see and i'm i'm just so thinking about this right and i i just read it and I'm, I'm out in the woods and I'm, I'm crying out. I'm like, Isaiah had a, a vision of you. That's what I need. I need a fresh vision of Jesus. And I remember out in the woods, the Holy Spirit said to me, that's not how I started the verse. Now, we didn't have cell phones back in those days, okay? I'm like, what, what, what? He said, go back, get your Bible and read it. So I go back to my office because this was the woods near the church and I, I open up my Bible and it says, in the year the King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And, I, and the Holy Spirit said, stop. He said, son, Uzziah has to die before Isaiah gets a fresh vision of me. And I said, who's this guy Uzziah? Now I know he's one of the kings. I don't know if he's the king of Israel, Judah. I don't know. I find him in 2 Chronicles 26 and I find out he's the king of Judah 
and he reigns 52 years. Now, as a U.S. citizen, in the last 52 years, I've been under 11 presidents. That's a long time. Well, they make him king when he's 16 years old, and he's a smart 16-year-old because the Bible says he seeks God like crazy, right? And the Bible says as long as, as he seeks the Lord, God makes him prosper. And boy, you talk about prosper? Woo-hoo! Man, he build, he takes back cities that his father had lost. He builds the economy strong, builds the military. I mean, he literally builds Judah back up to almost to where it was when King Solomon was king, right? So now he's a celebrity. I mean, this is your question, right? He's a slow. Everybody's like, he's the man. Well, then we read, when he was strong, this is Second Chronicles 26, when he was strong, his heart was lifted up. That's pride. To his destruction. For he emper- entered the temple, I'm, I'm quoting this, for he entered the temple of the Lord to offer incense. And he was confronted by Azariah and the priests. And when they confronted him, he got angry with them and leprosy broke out in his forehead. Now, first thing the Holy Spirit asked me is he said, John, did Uzziah get more spiritual or less spiritual when he got proud? I said, he got more spiritual. He entered the temple to worship. He said, a spirit of pride and a spirit of religion will run hand in hand and strengthen each other. Pride covers up your religious behavior and religion covers up your pride by your spiritual behavior. He said, they strengthen each other. Leprosy breaks out in his forehead. Leprosy is an outward manifestation of what was really happening inwardly. Now, let's you and I pretend we're living in Jerusalem in those days. Social media blows up. Our king has got leprosy. Everybody's like, oh my gosh, he's been such an amazing leader. And now he's got to live in an isolated house and son's got to take it. Oh my gosh, this is a disaster. Nobody, nobody but us reading understood that leprosy was only what happened on the outside. Nobody in the city realized it was what was happening here, the pride, the celebrity culture, right? The Holy Spirit spoke to me that day and he said, son, pastors that have fallen into immorality, they don't have a hormone problem, son. They had a pride problem. He said that immorality, the affair, the, uh, the substance abuse is what everybody saw on the outside. He said, it's the pride that opened the door. Now, the fear of the Lord and humility run so close together. This is why the awe of God is so important. Because you realize, you constantly, when you have the Holy Spirit of the fear of the Lord, because the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, spirit of knowledge, spirit of understanding, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord, and Jesus' delight was in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is one of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Every day, see him. I almost every day in prayer, I pray, God, please, I humble myself and I ask that you would baptize me with a fresh baptism of the holy fear of God. Too many of us are living in a bubble and not hearing both sides of the world's important stories. It's time for a more rounded perspective, balanced, relevant. Discover fresh biblical perspectives as we bring you wide ranging stories that impact the church wherever you live, however you worship. 
Discover the go-to source for Christian news. Subscribe now at premierchristianity.com. Now only £5 for three months. You must encounter people. You mentioned those stats about the number of people leaving the faith. And what do you say to a young person, a millennial, who just says, but but John, you know, every well-known, well-respected Christian leader I ever watched on YouTube or bought their book is falling. I mean, you mentioned examples of well-known pastors and you say the root is pride, but but the point is pastorally, you've got a lot of Christians in, in your country and mine saying anyone and everyone I look to seems to have these these falls from grace and 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 it's affecting me and it's affecting my faith. How do you help people through that? Um I'll I'll make it worse. <laughs> um there's a Dallas theological professor, a doctorate in theology. He did a deep, deep study, spent who knows, hundreds, maybe thousands of hours. He discovered that every major figure in the Bible, 75% of them did not finish well or had their effectiveness thwarted. 75%. So you've got 25% are people like Daniel who finish well. 75 or 25% are people like Paul who finishes well. Peter, who finishes well. I will tell you people, I look at the people that finished well. I have such deep admiration for Billy Graham. I have such deep admiration for Mother Teresa. I have such deep admiration for a lot of the leaders who did finish well. T.L. Osborne, Reinhard Bunke. These are all people I, I have known personally, except Billy Graham. And so I choose to look at the people that finished well. And I believe that if I embrace humility and the healthy fear of God, I believe that God promises that it will endure forever, that it will protect us. And Sam, that's why I wrote this book. I don't want people to fall. I don't, God doesn't want people to fall. You know, the devil and his angels and demonic spirits their power has been broken by Jesus, but they're very formidable opponents. And they don't come with a red coat and a pitchfork and a tail and horns and say, I'm here to destroy you. They are so much more clever than that. And I realize that if Michael wouldn't bring a railing accusation against him in disputing over the body of Moses, who am I to think I can finish well without the grace of God and the holy fear of God and the love of God burning in my heart and pursuing humility and holiness. I, I just, I, I need him. Yeah. I'd love to talk um, a bit more about your story here on the show. We always like to go back to the very beginning of a person's life and just hear about their first experiences, I suppose, of God. So what were, what were your experiences of, of God as a child, as a teenager? Did you grow up in a Christian environment? No, I, I, well, well, I was, I grew up Catholic. So I went to mass every single Sunday because the Catholic priest said when I was in third grade at a catechism, he said, if you miss a, a mass and you don't confess it in the confessional, then you'll go to hell forever because that's a mortal. We had mortal sins and venial sins as Catholics. And um, so I was on, I, I played Junior Davis Cup tennis. I played the USTA circuit. I played uh, at Purdue University. It doesn't matter if it was Junior Davis Cup or if it was our, our, our 
our college tennis matches, I had to go to Sunday morning service. And I remember when I was in my fraternity, I'd be at a kegger, which is, that's a beer kegger, a party, and I'm plastered drunk, and I'd go to midnight mass with my buddies. We'd giggle our way through midnight mass so we wouldn't have to get up with a hangover the next morning. So there was a, um, and, and I'm sorry to say this, Sam, I wouldn't even listen to a person unless they were an athlete. And that's, I was, an, I was a jerk, okay? I was saved by grace. We were all jerks before we got saved, okay? I don't care who you are. And um, I remember God knew what, what I needed. And one of the best athletes in the state of Indiana was in my fraternity. We had about 80 guys in our fraternity house. And he came up to my room one night. He saw how religious I was. He would come down to our kegger parties with a seven up in his hand. And when we started getting plastered, he'd suddenly disappear. And he was a very good looking man. The girls always just, you know, congregated around him. And I remember he came up to my room and he, he brought this, this track called the four spiritual laws campus crusade for Christ had uh, Bill Bright's group had written it. And he's sharing this with me and it, it's not clicking. It's not clicking at all. So he sees it and he looks at me and he goes, John, he goes, can you tell me about the president of the United States? I said, sure. Jimmy Carter, his wife's Rosalind. He's a peanut farmer for Georgia. He was the governor of Alabama. He said, good, good. He said, can you tell me about Jesus? And I gave him all my Catholic response. Down on a cross, born of a virgin, 12 apostles. He said, good. He said, do you know President Carter like you know your mother? I said, what? He said, do you know President Carter like you know your mother? I said, no. He said, what's the difference? I said, she's my mom. He said, explain the difference. I said, well, I know my mom. I know her personally. I've never met the president. He said, okay, so you have a personal relationship with your mom, but even though you know about the president, you never met him personally. I said, yes. He said, do you know Jesus like you know your mother? I don't know, what? And he said, John, God, God didn't create you to go to mass every Sunday. He created you to have an intimate relationship with him. Well, so um, that opened my eyes. And I remember right there, I wanted Jesus. I was like, okay, what do I do? What do I do? And I remember when I received him and, and, and received his spirit, I'm, I remember, and he changed me. I became, I mean, I became so full of joy. And my mother was horrified, my good Catholic mother. But after a few years, she looked at me, she said, you're, you're changed, you're different. Well, I started an off-campus Bible study at Purdue. We had people coming in, getting saved like crazy. And the Catholic priest, who was my drinking buddy before, you know, he was our house advisor for the fraternity. He, he could drink 16 beers and he'd drink me under the table. He, he got, started getting very upset. He started warning people on the campus about me because people are getting saved in my Bible study, right? And so that's kind of how the journey began. And uh, I remember he he wasn't happy about it at all. And I, I, I wrote a letter to my second grade school teacher who was Sister Madonna. She was the she was the head of the covenant of uh, they call it the convent of nurses. And I, I flew flew through her city on purpose on my way to marry my wife. And I met with her and I said, look, the Catholic priest was so upset with me. Yet you, I wrote to you and you wrote back and said, praise God, I've been praying for you since you've been in second grade. I said, please tell me the difference. Why two different responses? She said, John, you know, I know Jesus personally. He doesn't. 
Why do you think I wear this? Because God wants me here in the Catholic Church to reach those who don't know me. There are many people that know Jesus in the Catholic Church, but there are many people that don't know him. There are many people that know Jesus in the charismatic church, in the evangelical church. There are many people that don't know him in the evangelical church and in the charismatic. And, and so, just as I said in the beginning of our interview, I believe the holy, healthy fear of God is the key to knowing him intimately. I believe God put that in me as a Catholic. I mean, if you look at Cornelius, before he got saved, he was a devout man. That word devout means he feared God. Paul said this message is being sent to the Jews and to those who fear God. I had a fear of God before I got saved. And I carried it into my salvation experience. And so I, I think that the way Scripture's been taught the last 20 years in the evangelical circles, in the charismatic circles, in the Pentecostal circles, it's almost as if we say, Jesus is my buddy. Jesus is my friend. Well, yes, he said, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. What's the manifestation of the fear mm -hmm. of God? It's obedience. There's even, uh, there's even that phrase, isn't there, of Jesus is my boyfriend worship songs. I don't know if you've come across that phrase. But this this uh, is that part of the problem, that even in our worship songs, it's it's too close, buddy-ish? Yeah, um, if you look at it, you say, what's the evidence of the fear of God? What is the evidence? Like, how do I know that there's power in the outlet, right? With us, we're 110, you're 220. If I put a knife in there and you're not doing my funeral three days from now, okay, that's how we determine the evidence if there's power in a wall socket, right? All right, so what's the evidence? What's the outward evidence that somebody truly fears God? They'll obey God instantly. Okay, David says... King David says in Psalm 119, I will hurry to obey your commands. Somebody says, you know, the Lord's been dealing with me about this now for several months, and they laugh about it. You're laughing about your lack of fear of God. You obey God instantly. You obey God if it doesn't make sense. Does God ever tell us to do things that don't make sense? Does it make sense to forgive the person that has hurt you? Does it make sense to bless those who have cursed you? Does it make sense to love your enemies? Okay, I could go on. We obey God even if it hurts. We obey God even if we don't see a benefit. You know, there's a lot of Christians, if you don't show them the benefit of obedience, like if you give, God will do this. If you pray, God will do this. If you serve, God will do this. Well, wait a minute. Are you telling me I'm not going to serve unless I know what God will do? I mean, what about Esther? Esther's queen to the Persian king, the most powerful man on the planet. She's got everything her hearts could desire. And she now has to go before her husband, the king, and if he doesn't point a scepter at her in the inner throne room, her head comes off. She's got everything to lose and nothing to gain. She's got nothing to gain. But she says to Mordecai, tell the women, tell the women to fast. I'm going before the king. If I die, I die. She feared God. She had nothing to gain, but she obeyed God. And it means you'll obey God to completion. Saul didn't. King Saul did 99.99% of what God told him to do. But yet God said he's disobeyed me. So the manifestation is to obey God instantly. If you don't see a benefit, uh, if it hurts, if, if, if it doesn't make sense, and to completion. Now, listen to Jesus' words. John 15, 14. You are my friends. We stop right there. We write books about it. We sing songs about it. We preach sermons about it, but we never finish the sentence. You are my friends if F -F. is a condition. You are my friends if what? You are my friends if you do whatever I command you.
And then he says, he said, I will manifest myself to the one who has my commandments and keeps them in John 14. So both those line up. Then you look at Paul, who says, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. You know, I had a very famous evangelist in 1994. He was world-renowned. He had been put in prison for five years. He, he committed mail fraud. He was probably one of the most well-known human beings on the planet. He read the first book I wrote and asked me to come visit him in prison. And I remember when I sat down with him, Sam, he looked at me and he said, John, this prison wasn't God's judgment on my life. It was his mercy. I said, what? And he said, John, if I would have continued to live the way I was living, I would have been separated God from God for eternity. I would have been in hell forever. Now I realized, oh my gosh. So he explained to me, he said, John, there was so much corruption and evil in my life and God delivered me the first year of prison. And he told me about how he has a, a church in the prison. This is a federal penitentiary. He has a church. And he said, we study scriptures for three hours every day. We take Jesus's word. We bring him down with sentence to five words, to three words, to one word, to three words, to five words. He's telling me all about this, right? And I'm like, wow. I said, well, you're leading this church, right? Because I mean, this is one of the most, he had the biggest evangelistic ministry in the planet in the 1980s. And he goes, no way, I'm not leading it. And I said, why aren't you leading it? You're the most qualified. He said, are you kidding? I was a master manipulator. I'm not going near that. And I'm like, wow, okay, I'm all here, right? So when he tells me his whole story, I said, okay, I got to ask you a question. In the early 1980s, when I first got saved, I loved listening to you. You wept as you preached the gospel. You loved Jesus and people so much. When did you fall out of love with Jesus? At what point? And he goes, I didn't. And I said, wait a minute. You committed adultery, and I named the woman's name in 1983. You did all this mail fraud from 83 to 90. You were arrested, sentenced, and and, and, and thrown in prison in 1990. You're telling me you loved Jesus all through this? I said, yes, John, I did. And he sees the confusion on my face, and he said, I didn't fear God, John. I said, what? He said, I didn't fear God. He said, there are millions of American Christians just like me. They love Jesus, but they don't fear God. You see, Sam... God's given us two might, mighty forces that keep us on the road to eternal life. Remember, Jesus said the road after the gate is narrow. What are the two forces? Because what, what keeps us from falling into the ditches on both sides of those ro that road, that, that narrow road? The first ditch is called legalism. And God gave us a great force that delivered us from legalism, and that is God is a good God. He's our daddy. He loves us, right? That revelation of the love of God delivered us out of legalism. But you know what we did? We went to the other side of the road and we fell into the other ditch. And that other ditch is called lawlessness. And God's given us a great force that keeps us from that ditch called the fear of the Lord. And that's why the Bible says, by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil, not by the love of God. It's interesting what you said about both of those, both both the legalism and the lawlessness, because I think people can probably think of examples of where they might have heard that teaching in their own lives. I mean, the, a particularly prominent example of, of the kind of legalism that we've seen, again, both in your country and mine, is what's been dubbed sometimes the prosperity gospel. This idea that if I, if I give $1,000 to a particular ministry, God is going to bless me. And obviously you, you can see the kind of corruption in that. 
it was really interesting to me that someone who I know you you were when Benny Hinn even even apologized in 2019. He said he's correcting his theology on that point that he felt like he'd taken that idea of that good idea of God wants to bless you had taken it to a really unhealthy extreme with that kind of legalism. But this is still a huge issue in in many parts of the church, isn't it? This idea that this kind of legal, almost transaction that you can have with God of well, God owes me something. If I if I give, if I do that, then God wants to bless and wants to make me prosperous. That's an idea you must have come into contact with before. As I say, you you worked with Benny Hinn for some years, didn't you? Uh, it's very sad, very very sad to reduce a relationship with our Creator down to a transactional relationship. And um, I have no comments about you know other ministers. They're not my servants. I do have to give an account for me and the people that God has called me to lead. And I just know this. Our Father is much more interested in a deep, intimate relationship with us. I mean, it's very sad. The prosperity gospel really puts the focus back on yourself, okay, if you want to say that, okay? When in reality, any kind of resources that God entrusts us with Yes, he wants his children to be blessed. I love giving my kids gifts. And God is no different. He loves giving his kids gifts. But I, I remember one day, God spoke to me, and I happened to be working for Benny Hinn. This was in the 1980s. And he said, son, don't seek me for the blessings. Let me give them to you. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first my righteousness. And Sam, I... I'd be lying to you if I, if I told you I was, God has blessed my wife and I beyond. Sometimes I just makes me want to cry. I mean, the greatest, you know what the greatest prosperity he's given to us is in natural. The fact that we've been able to give 53 million resources to pastors and leaders in 200 and what is it? 35 nations of the world. We can't think of anything. I'd give up. I'd give up any of this. What I'm sitting in anything to be able to give every single pastor in the world a resource that's going to help them with their walk with Jesus. So I don't want to comment on other ministers. That's the, you know God, God, you know I when I, that's interesting. You had that of of actually God speaking to you in that kind of context. So clearly, I mean, theology must have changed and and developed over time as God has taught you things and led you in a particular direction. Yeah, I mean, hey, we're kids. You, you, the thing, the thing that I always want to do, I don't care. I, I, I turn sixty-four in two months. When I'm eighty-five, I want to be teachable. When I'm eighty-five, I want to have a heart that's humble, truly humble, not a fake humble, a real teachable, humble heart. Because I've watched too many. Paul said, "I'm, I'm like disciplining my body severely, like an athlete, because I don't want to preach to millions." and then be a castaway myself. You know what my number one ministry goal is? It's not to give more books to pastors. My number one ministry goal, this is it. No other goal is greater than this ministry goal. That when I leave this earth, I'm more in love with Jesus than the day I started ministry. That is my number one goal. And then we work down from there. I don't ever want to become bitter and cynical. You know, Solomon lost the fear of God. He was raised in it and he let it go. And what happens? You get a gift from God, and that gift is called Ecclesiastes. There are two books we don't like to read, Job and Ecclesiastes. 
Why don't we like to read those books? I'll, t- I'll tell everybody why we don't like to read those books, because they're two inspired books written by two uninspired men. I mean, think about it. Um, I'm, 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 you know what? I'm, I'm going to do something here. Um, Solomon, this is what he writes to Ecclesiastes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote him. Everything is boring, utterly boring. No one can find any meaning in it. Here's another quote. History merely repeats itself, as there is nothing new under the sun. Now, here's another quote. What is wrong cannot be made right. Here's another one. What is missing cannot be recovered. Here's the big one. The day you die is better than the day you were born. Who writes this? I will tell you who writes this. A pessimistic cynic. Somebody who's now become jaded. He's not tender. He's not like a child anymore. He's not teachable. He's jaded. And do you know how many jaded, cynical people I have met in ministry in my 40 years of ministry? Sam, I don't ever want to go there. I don't ever. I want to be teachable. I want to be tender. I want to be compassionate. And I want to be deeply in love with Jesus. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.